Dear Father in heaven, Lord, once again, we thank you for this beautiful day. Lord, what a glorious day of weather you've given us today. Sunshine and cool air. And we just thank you so much for that blessing. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here safely tonight, bringing us to your house, to your word. Lord, we ask you now to please send your Holy Spirit, send your angels to be with us tonight as we open your word, as we open your truths, as we study this sometimes controversial, difficult topic. We ask you to please open our hearts and our minds to the plain Bible truth so that we can understand your truth about this topic. Lord, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever visited hell? Anybody? No? Well, careful, don't jump to conclusions. Thousands of people visit hell every year. And most of them hope they don't stay there very long. It's extremely hot with barren ground. It's a barren, jagged landscape. And you certainly wouldn't want to spend your entire life there in the extreme heat of this desolate place. Uh-huh, yeah. Hell's a real place. In Grand Cayman, it's a group of short black limestone formations in the Grand Caymans, on the Cayman Islands, and thousands of tourists visit it every year. It's located in West Bay. It is about half the size of an American football field. Viewing platforms are erected that allow visitors to take photographs of this amazing geological formation. It is a unique formation characterized by jagged, spongy pinnacles of black-covered limestone. You see, this formation was produced when algae interact with the limestone present at that location. And it creates a decaying, death-like appearance in these rock formations. It almost appears as the entire place was scorched and completely destroyed. Now, there are numerous versions of how hell received its name. But the most popular idea that when people looked at this blackened, isolated location, they exclaimed, my, this is what hell must look like. It is also claimed that the name hell is derived from the fact that if a pebble is thrown into its formation, it echoes among the limestone peaks and valleys and sounds as if the pebble is falling all the way down to hell. Now, regardless of how it first came to be called hell, the name stuck, and the area has become a major tourist attraction, featuring a fire engine red hell-themed post office from which you can send postcards from hell, and a gift shop with souvenirs from hell. Ironically, some of the stores in that area feature prominent quotations from the Bible. So maybe it's time for us to discover what hell is really like. Is hell a hot spot in the center of the earth? Are millions of people suffering there right now? Ask yourself, as we've gone through this series about the character of God, would a loving God torture people in hell for millions of years? 
let's see what the Bible really says about hell. And we're going to discover something more amazing than a desolate location called hell in the Grand Cayman Islands. Remember our theme. When it comes to this subject, we especially need to remember this theme. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. My friends, there's so much untruth, deception, confusion about hell. Especially in the Christian church. In fact, many traditions about hell actually disagree with some very plain statements about God's judgments that we find in the Bible. The book of Revelation describes a lake of fire on the surface of the earth. A huge inferno which those who are at war with God are consumed. I want you to look at how the Bible describes the destruction of those who, led by Satan, tried to take the city of God at the end of the millennium. Remember from last night? The end of the millennium. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Page 1188. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So they surrounded the city. Now remember, if you were here last night, and if you weren't, please get the CD. In our study on the millennium last night, we learned that when Jesus returns to earth, he resurrects the righteous dead, amen? Those who committed their lives to him during their lifetimes. They come forth from their graves. They rise to meet him in the air. And together with the righteous living, they ascend to heaven to spend a thousand years with him in heaven. Praise the Lord. Those who have rejected the Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts, remember, they're terrified at his second coming. They cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. And they are slain by the brightness of his second coming. And during the thousand years, remember the earth is desolate of all human life. And Satan is bound here with his wicked angels for the entire millennium. And remember, it's not a physical binding, it's not handcuffs. He's bound by circumstance. And at the end of the thousand years, God, in an amazing display of both power and grace, moves the very headquarters of the universe to this planet that has been the scene of so much rebellion, so much pain and suffering, he moves his headquarters here. So the final events, the holy city descends, the wicked dead are resurrected. Remember, Satan marshals the enemies of God together and they attack the city. And then the wicked are devoured by the fire from God. During their lifetimes, they gave their allegiance to Satan. And when they are resurrected, immediately they fall right back into the ranks of Satan's leadership. They fall into his rulership, his lordship. And they join his legions of the lost as they rush up to take the glorious city. 
Revelation 20, verse 9, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. You see, my friends, the Bible describes this judgment as the second death. Turn me back to verse 6. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed in he is holy. I'm sorry, blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Second death. What does the Bible mean about this second death? We might describe it this way. The first death is the death that we each die as the natural result of living in this sinful world. The second death is an eternal death as the result of a personal rebellion against God. The second death results not only because we were born in a world of sin, but because we chose the way of sin. We chose to oppose God. This eternal death occurs at the end of the 1,000 years. Remember, the wicked are resurrected at the end of the 1,000 years. And as I said, with Satan, they join up and they attack the city. And the record of their lives is shown to them by God. God shows them their choices. Shows them what side they chose. And even his enemies recognize that he's fair and just. And at that moment, fire comes down from God of heaven. The lake of fire occurs, and they experience what the Bible says is the second death. And out of the ashes of the old world, God creates the new world. Listen to the description of the new world. Turn me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, page 1189. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now turn to verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. My friends, I love this verse. No more pain. Amen? No more pain. Gone. Suffering is gone. You see, my friends, God wants to deal with sin. But he wants to deal with it in a way that will do away with it forever. So that it never rises up again. God wants to do away with suffering forever. He wants to do away with pain forever. God wants to do away with physical affliction forever. What about that lake of fire? What about hell? How can you have a lake, a fire burning on the surface of earth forever and also have earth made new? And it seems like a, a problem there, doesn't it? It seems like a contradiction. How can Jesus wipe away all tears from our eyes if our lost loved ones are continually being burned in unimaginable torment forever and ever and ever? My friends, it's absolutely amazing, and actually a better word is shocking, to think that some Christians want to hold on to the idea of God burning people in hell for trillions and trillions of years. It's a very prevalent thought in the Christian church, though. 
Let me ask you this. Would you want to torment your worst enemy for trillions of years? I hope not, because that's not the heart of God. Now, my friends, on the bright side, the power of the Holy Spirit is speaking to the Christian world and to the non-believing world. Did you know that many evangelical Christian leaders today are discovering the truth about hell? That I'm going to share with you tonight, they're discovering the same truths. If you go to a Christian bookstore today, many leading scholars are writing treatises on the truth of what the Bible actually teaches about hell. For example, Dr. John Stott, he's a very respected, world-famous Anglican Bible expositor, and he's an author. He has rejected the doctrine of the eternally burning hell. Dr. Edward Fudge, another well-respected Bible scholar, has completed a well-documented study of the biblical truth of hell titled, The Fire That Consumes. These scholars realize that the idea of an ever-burning hell for trillions of years is really a pagan doctrine, and it's blasphemy to a God of love. Wow, that's pretty strong words, Dan. Blasphemy. It's attacking the character of God. But, many honest Christians have questions, amen? Remember what I've said through the whole series? We're told in the Bible to do what? Come reason with me, God says. That's what we're going to do. So what about those questions? Let's talk about some questions that Christians have about hell. First of all, when does hell occur? Is it burning in the center of the earth right now? It's a good question, isn't it? Number two, how long does hell last? Number three, how can a loving God destroy those he loves? My friends, those are, those are good questions. And with good questions, don't you think that we can trust the Bible to give us clear teaching on an topic as important as this? Now we're going to look at each question briefly to give an overview. And then I'm going to explore the subject in a little bit more depth. So first we're going to talk about when does hell occur? Is it in the center of the earth? Is it happening right now? Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Page 931. Malachi chapter 4. Verse 1. For behold... The day is coming. Has the day come yet? Okay. The day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. The Bible's very clear. Has that day come yet? No, because the Bible says, Behold, the day is coming. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. The day that is coming. My friends, the destruction of the wicked occurs, according to the Bible, at the end of time. Does the Bible say that the wicked will go to hell when they die, and that they're in hell now, and they're being burned up? 
It's not what we just read. It says the day which is coming shall burn them up. We see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that the cleansing of the world by fire is future. Turn with it there with me. Page 1167. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They're reserved for fire. If hell were a hot spot in the center of the earth, it wouldn't be reserved. It'd be there. Malachi chapter 4 says the day is coming. 2 Peter chapter 3 says they are reserved for judgment. When do the fires of hell occur? At the end of time. If the judgment is in the future then the wicked are not burning right now. Next question. Number two. How long does hell last? We're going to see, according to the Bible. The Bible is very clear that it lasts until it gets the job done. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, page 1157. Hebrews 12, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. God is the consuming fire to sin wherever sin is found. Back to Malachi, chapter 4. Page 931. We were just there. Right before the New Testament. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 3. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. My friends, the wicked will be turned to ashes. They will not continually burn for millions and trillions of years, according to the Bible. You see, God is going to put an end, a complete and utter end to sin. And he's going to put an end to hell. All of the heartache, all of the suffering will be over with. Done. All of the pain will be over. And when that happens, when it's all done, the purpose of hellfire is done. Its purpose has been utilized. And the fires go out, and then God makes a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says that God is going to make an utter end of sin. Now I want you to be clear about this. An utter end to sin. No more. There will be no more sin, no more transgression, no more rebellion. Question number three. How can a loving God destroy those he loves? It's a great question, isn't it? Turn to John chapter 3, verse 16, page 1027. We know the verse, but let's go there. John chapter 3, verse 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My friends, that's not a trademark. It's not a motto. It's the very heart of the gospel. It is a description of God's character in its simplest form in one verse. Love. Pure love. Sacrificial love. You see, God, out of pure love, provides a way of salvation. Provides a way out of sin. Provides a rescue plan. But it's at a tremendous cost. It's at an infinite cost. He gave his only son because he did not want even one of us to perish. But to all to have everlasting life. But there's a, there's a catch there. Can you force someone to love you in return? It's not love, is it? It's not love. A loving God doesn't bring the unsaved to heaven where there is unselfish love because they are filled with selfish hate. I mentioned this a little bit last night. God does not bring them there because he loves them and they would be miserable there. For him to bring them up there, he'd have to do cosmic surgery on their brain. Now, God's capable of that. But remember, God gives them freedom of choice, gives us all freedom of choice, free will. And therefore, out of love, he honors our choices. He respects our choices. He doesn't get joy in the bad choices, but he respects them. The lost have turned their back on him. They do not want his love. If they cling to sin, then they, along with their sin, is destroyed by the presence of his glory. The idea that God could punish them forever for a few years of their hatred and rebellion, my friends, is not from the Bible. It is a pagan doctrine that came into the church. In fact, here's what the early church, taking their pure faith from the Bible, believed. Turn me to Psalms chapter 37. Psalms chapter 37, page 534. Psalms chapter 37, verse 20. But the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the metals, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. Wait, wait a minute. It doesn't say they're, they keep burning and burning and burning and burning, does it? It says they will vanish away. My friends, the Bible has many verses that clearly describe the temporary nature of hell. But, what about some of those verses that seem to make it sound like hell's permanent? What does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire? As we've said, my friends, the Bible does not contradict itself. We take it as a whole, 
And then we try to understand how it all fits together. And to see how this works, we need to consider the use of the word eternal in talking of the death of Christ on the cross as an example. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Page 1153. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What kind of redemption? There's that word eternal. Eternal redemption. Question. Does that mean he's still hanging on the cross today? Oh, it said eternal. My friends, Jesus is not on that cross, I assure you. But the act of the cross, the effects of the cross are eternal. We read in the same book, this time in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, page 1151. Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. There's that eternal word again. At the end of time, there will be judgment. We've studied that in multiple nights. But remember, according to the Bible, God doesn't keep judging on and on and on and eternally judging. Remember? Judgment ends. There will be one judgment. But the results of redemption and the results of judgment will be everlasting. They will be eternal. The results of the cross are everlasting. Likewise, when God destroys the wicked, it is eternal destruction. The results are everlasting. We see the same understanding emerge from Jude 7. Turn me to Jude 7. Page 1173. Right before the book of Revelation. Little bitty book doesn't even have chapters. Jude 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Eternal fire. Jude uses the example, uses the symbolism of Sodom and Gomorrah. What kind of fire burned Sodom and Gomorrah? They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Question. Are Sodom and Gomorrah burning tonight? It says eternal. Are they burning right now? No. But according to the Bible, it was an eternal fire because the effects of that fire were eternal, permanent. The fire came down from God out of heaven and consumed or burned up these violent cities, burned them up. An eternal fire is one whose effects or results are eternal. That's the biblical definition of an eternal fire. 
The effects of that fire were eternal. What about everlasting punishment? Let's talk about everlasting punishment. Turn me to Matthew chapter 25. Page 962. Matthew chapter 25, verse 45. Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Everlasting punishment. Punishment. Everlasting punishment is not everlasting punishing. It says punishment. And those two terms are not the same thing. Do you see the difference? The Bible never speaks about everlasting punishing. It's not God taking delight in punishing people without end over and over and over. The Bible does not teach that. My friends, I'm here to tell you, the God of heaven does not sit upon his throne in heaven and say, I told you, I told you so. You're burning. You're being consumed. You're writhing in flames. And you're just getting what you deserve. That's not how God operates. It's not his character. And he's not going to say a thousand years later, <laughs> you're still burning. He's not going to keep saying, I told you so, I told you so, throughout eternity. What kind of God would do that? Are you, as a Christian, willing to say God has delight in that? Now, don't be quick to answer that question because a whole bunch of Christians <laughs> accuse God of that very thing. My friends, I'm not picking on people. I'm trying to get them to read their Bibles. Please, read your Bibles. Christians really believe he's going to keep people burning for trillions of years. The Bible is so plain on this subject. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, turn there, page 1131. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. The enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Now, the Greek word for destruction is one of the strongest words in the entire Bible. It means to be utterly consumed or totally destroyed. It means to be completely annihilated. Gone. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, page 941. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. The Bible teaches that the wicked are destroyed. Not everlasting punished. Over and over and over and over. The Bible is very clear about the fate of the wicked. The fate of the wicked. Romans chapter 6 verse 23, we've studied it multiple nights. The wicked will die. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Would death be death if the person was still alive burning in flames? They wouldn't be dead. They might not be very pleasant, but they wouldn't be dead. Number two, the wicked will perish. We see that in Luke chapter 13, verse 3. The Bible is clear. The wicked will perish. Number three, and we saw it earlier, multiple times, Malachi chapter 4, the wicked will be burned up. It doesn't say burning. It says burned up. Number four, the wicked will be utterly consumed. We saw that in Psalms chapter 37, verse 20. Utterly consumed. Back to Malachi chapter 4, the wicked will be turned into ashes. That means the fuel for the burning has gone. It's burned up. Number six, the wicked will be as though they had not been. My friends, this is a very powerful verse. Let's turn there to Obadiah 16. Page 897. Like, damn, where in the world is that? It's right before the book of Jonah. and Right after Amos. Obadiah, another Small book, no chapters. Obadiah 16. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. My friends, this is a key text. The Bible says that it will be as though they had never been. God has given them an opportunity to live. God has given them an opportunity to enjoy life. God has given them an opportunity to be rescued from sin and to live eternal life. And they turn their backs on him. And a loving God cannot take them into heaven to start rebellion all over again. My friends, a loving God has allowed them to live, allowed them to make their choices. And during that life, a loving God has appealed to their hearts. This loving God does the best that he's able to do. And they are consumed in the presence of his holiness. They are consumed in the presence of his righteousness. And they suffer for their sins and their rejection of him. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is suffering in hell. There is pain. But the greatest pain isn't physical. 
say, well, how can you say that, Dan? I've burned myself before. My friends, the greatest pain is the agony of knowing that they could have been in heaven. The greatest pain is what they've lost. They say, I could have been in that city. I could be rejoicing. I could have lived with Christ forever. Eternal joy could have been mine. Now all is lost. Number seven, Isaiah chapter 47, verse 14 tells us Satan will be totally destroyed. I say, praise the Lord. Satan is gone. Evil angels are gone. And best of all, sin is gone. I praise God that sin is going to be all gone forever and ever. But what about the concept of body and soul? Doesn't the body return to the dust, but the soul go to hell? But when we have those kind of questions, who do we ask? We ask Jesus. Jesus on prophecy. Can we trust Jesus to tell us the truth? Amen. Turn me to Matthew chapter 10, page 944. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. According to Jesus, which parts of the person's body and soul wind up in hell? Both. According to Jesus, what parts are destroyed there? Both. The wicked are utterly consumed, is what Jesus is saying. Gone. Like Obadiah said, as if they never were. What about the biblical expression, unquenchable fire? Have you heard of that? Phrase? Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, page 979. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. There it is, right? See, Dan, I told you. It's burning all the time. You can't quench it. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, he even says it twice. It's not quenched. Many point to this verse and say, see, there's an eternal fire. The fire that is not quenched, their worm doesn't die. Notice it doesn't say their immortal soul doesn't die. It says their worm doesn't die. Unquenchable fire is a fire that no human hand can put out. It burns totally until it consumes everything. You say, well, yeah, that sounds good, Dan, but you just invented that. Let's see what the Bible says. 
Jeremiah chapter 7. You should know by now that I'm not inventing this stuff. But let's let the Bible prove. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27, page 748. I love to hear the pages turn. Jeremiah 17, verse 27. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Shall not be quenched. Unquenchable fire, right? The verse is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and again in A.D. 70 by the Romans. We've talked about that too. What kind of fire burned Jerusalem? Unquenchable. In both cases, the fires were started by armies. And these fires could not be put out until they had consumed the gates and the buildings within the city. Now I'm going to ask you another question. Is Jerusalem burning tonight? Said unquenchable. Has it burned in the last 2,000 years? Not at all. But wasn't it an unquenchable fire? You see, my friends, an unquenchable fire is a fire that no human hands can put out. That's what an unquenchable fire is. You see, the greatest goal of Jesus is to lovingly save men and women. But if they rebel against his salvation, an unquenchable fire is going to consume all sin in the universe. One day, not one ash of sin will remain. You see, God is going to do a thorough job. God is going to do a complete job. And we will be done with sin forever and ever. One day, the only thing that will reign is holiness and righteousness. God will sit upon his throne with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and believers who trust him will live with him throughout eternity. Sin will not remain in hell someplace, burning over and over and over. Sinners will not remain in hell someplace, burning over and over. The devil will not remain in hell, burning over and over. None of that will remain because God wants it to be gone. Now I want you to follow this reasoning. I want you to think this through. Before the rebellion in heaven, there was no taint of sin in the universe, amen? There was no sickness, no suffering, no death. Now, do you think that that same God is not going to restore the universe? Do you think that God is going to leave the blot of sin in this world? Do you think that God is going to leave the saint of sinners in the universe in this little place called hell? Oh, okay, Dan, but what about this expression? 
What about the biblical expression forever and ever? It's in the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10 and 11. Page 1184. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. Forever and ever. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 3, page 1187. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. We have just seen a list of Bible verses that describe the fires as going out, didn't we? But here it clearly talks about smoke going up forever and ever. Is there anything in the Bible that will help us reconcile these two seemingly opposite ideas? Do we throw out a dozen verses or try to understand what the Bible is actually teaching us? So what does the forever mean in the Bible? You see, forever in the Bible can be translated as until the end of the age. It sometimes refers to a limited time. I'm going to show you some examples. The Bible talks about this in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21. Let's go there. Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, page 71. Exodus chapter 21, verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him Forever. Forever. You see, that pierced ear is a symbol of slavery. So the slave is going to serve his master forever, according to the Bible, using the word forever. But I want you to think about this. Do you mean that in the new earth, the slave will still be serving that master? Absolutely not. Not at all. What does it mean that he'll serve him forever? It meant that he will serve him as long as he lived. A limited amount of time. I want you to notice how the word forever is used in a beautifully touching story of Hannah dedicating her son to the priesthood. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, page 257. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there. How long? Forever. So how long is forever? Go to verse 28. Let the Bible interpret itself. Therefore... I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. 
How long is forever? As long as he lived. It's the key. In verse 22, it says he will go up there forever. In verse 28, it says he'll be there as long as he lives. Forever equals as long as he lives. The wicked are in the flames until the end of the age. Until they are totally consumed. Until the job is done. Until they are burned up. Until they are no longer living. When Christ comes the second time, the wicked, the unbelievers, are reserved to judgment. Now some people might ask, well, wait a minute, Dan, what about this parable of the rich man and Lazarus? You see, this is from Jesus' own words when he says that a rich man was in a place of torment after he died. If Jesus said it, we need to take it seriously, right? We can't pass over it. This story was fifth in a sequence of where Jesus was trying to teach us that we cannot serve God in mammon or money. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, page 1013. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. And this is the story. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money and heard all these things, and they derided him. So that's the, the preamble. We're ta- he's talking about money. He's trying to teach us about how terrible the love of money is. And in verse 19 through 27, he tells this parable of a rich man who lived and who ate sumptuously while a poor beggar named Lazarus would just hope for a few crumbs from this rich man's table. Both men die. Lazarus goes to meet Father Abraham while the rich man goes to a place of torment where he pleads for Abraham to send Lazarus a little water to cool his tongue. Now the question, the heart of this question comes down to how do we interpret parables? This is a parable. If we must interpret all details of a parable literal, then we must draw some conclusions. If we're going to say that this parable is literal, then here's some conclusions. First of all, Abraham's bosom must be really large. If the story is literal and the place we go is to Abraham's bosom, it's got to be really big. Right? If you are a Christian and you believe that this parable is literal, you believe that people in heaven can see people in hell and have conversations with them. According to this, if you believe it's literal, if you say this is a soul in hell, if that's how you're interpreting this, it's talking about physical things, fingers and eyes and tongues. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews believed very clearly that riches were a sign of divine favor. And poverty was a sign of divine displeasure. So Jesus gave them this parable, this symbolic story. He turned it around and he showed that God judges man on how they lived. And the writings of the Bible are sufficient to reveal our duty to our fellow man. That's what Jesus was teaching in this parable. 
It wasn't a lesson on hell. It was a lesson on our duty to our fellow man. The parable provided a vehicle for making the teaching startling clear to the Pharisees that were in his audience. The scripture says clearly that the wicked will be as though they had not been. That's what the Bible says. Sin destroys. It destroys our lives here, and it will destroy our lives in eternity. Jesus, and Jesus alone offers us abundant life. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 50, page 949. Matthew chapter 13, verse 50. And cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Why this agony? Well, my friends, it's mental agony. Because they know what they could have had. They know that they could have lived, but now they are lost. You see, Christ has made provision to save every human being. Christ walked into the fires and experienced it so we don't have to. There was no smoke or flame on Calvary that day. But Christ tasted the mental agony of every lost soul. And it was on the cross that Christ, bearing the guilt of all humanity, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, on that cross, he went through the pain, the suffering, the agony, and condemnation, the weeping and gnashing of teeth that the soul separated from God, will go through in the last judgment. Turn me to Ezekiel, chapter 18, page 818. Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 23. Page 818. This was the heart of the question earlier. What a loving God burn over and over and over. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should have turned his ways and live? What a question. Before the whole universe, he asks it. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And he answers his own question in verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Now, I want you to notice something in that quote. He says, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies that does good. Doesn't say that, does it? He says he has no pleasure in anyone that dies. It goes to the heart of what I've been preaching all night. A loving God wants none to be burned up in the fire. A loving God wants us all to come to him, to be rescued, to avoid the fire. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. My fiery presence will consume and burn up sin at the end of time. 
God's saying sin will be no more at the end of time. Because there needs to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I say, thank God, because he reaches out to you and me to give us a chance to avoid that fate. My friends, thank God that he offers us life so that not one man, one woman, one boy, one girl needs to be lost. It's not necessary. We do not need to experience the agony of a consuming fire. We do not have to experience the mental torture of what could have been. We do not have to have a life with a tragic ending. We do not need to be utterly consumed. We do not need to be burnt up. We do not need to be turned to ashes. We can look forward to eternal life with Jesus. We can celebrate with gladness. We can rejoice through all of eternity. Tonight, deep in your heart, I want you to reflect on this message on the character of God. If you want to say, Lord, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you for this truth that sin will not remain. That sin will be consumed. If you want to say thank you, that sin will be eliminated forever. Thank you for the truth that God's plan of love will sweep the universe clean of sin. Thank you for the truth that you do not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. My friends, you can reach out to him tonight, to his invitation to live, to enjoy life in all of its abundance, in all of its fullness. I want you to think about this. I want you to reflect on God's character. Hell is not burning forever and ever. A loving God does not do that. But he will put an end to sin forever. He will bring a new earth and a new heaven for those that love him to live with him forever. Please, bow your heads with me in prayer tonight. Say, Lord, thank you that sin will be done away forever. Bow your heads to the Lord of heaven And say, Lord, count me in. I want to live with you through all eternity. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear glorious Father in heaven, Lord, once again, we thank you for all that you've done for us. But most of all, we thank you for the sacrifice of your dear son, the shedding of your dear blood, the infinite cost that you paid to give us a chance at redemption and rescue. And Lord, we thank you tonight for these truths about hell dispel the miss, the deception, and most of all, the opportunity to see your true character of love. And Lord, we know that a loving God could not burn us forever and ever and ever and ever. But Lord, we also hear your calling and your word. We see that time is ending very soon at the doorstep. Your soon coming is very near. And so Lord, I ask you to please continue to contend with those dear souls in the world and here that may not have given their hearts to you yet or have slipped away from your path, Lord. And I ask you to continue to call to them, continue to reach into their hearts, draw them unto your love so that they can spend eternity with you and avoid the consuming fire. Lord, I ask you to please keep us all safe. Draw us near to your love 
Go before us and protect us. Continue to call us. And most of all, love us as you always have. Lord, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.